watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I am Mark Dickerson. And I am Jeremy Fink. And today we'll be closing out our series, Lo-Fi Sci-Fi, by discussing 2004's Primer. what's going to happen. I'm going to read this, and you're going to listen, and you're going to stay on the line, and you're not going to interrupt, you're not going to speak for any reason. Some of this you know. I'm going to start at the top of the page. Meticulous. Yes. Methodical. Educated. They were these things. Nothing extreme. Like anyone they varied, there were days of mistakes and laziness and infighting. And there were days, good days, when by anyone's judgment, they would have to be considered clever. No one would say that what they were doing was complicated. It wouldn't even be considered new, except for maybe in the geological sense. They took from their surroundings what was needed, and made of it something more. Alright, so here we have Primer from 2004, directed by Shane Carruth, made on the minuscule budget of $7,000. The lowest we'll be talking about. Yep, and so Primer follows the story predominantly of two engineers, Aaron and Abe, who in their free time, along with a couple of friends, are working on a project, uh, some type of science project. We don't entirely understand what it is at first, but we understand that it involves electromagnetic objects and uh, kind of uh, putting them into this box that isn't entirely clear what it's doing, but they seem very excited about it. Um, Some sort of experiment with weight, I think the, the mass lowering the mass of it or something like that yeah something very specific um but as an unexpected side effect of this project they discover that they're able to move objects through time uh so once they make this discovery the two of them decide to decide to play the stock market by traveling back in time and making all kinds of money and riches and seeing what they can do with their lives but of course it goes horribly wrong and things Mm -hmm. go off the rails uh yeah that's a very simple summary. So, uh, once again, always on this show, spoiler alerts from the beginning. However, this is a film that I don't even know if you really can spoil. Because, it's hard to spoil, yeah. Yeah, so, so the beauty of this film and the thing that makes it challenging is that once things start to get go off the rails a little bit with the time travel, things get really, really confusing uh, as the viewer, um, which is kind of a... A challenge for me the first time I watched this through. I don't know about you, Mark, if you felt the same mm-hmm. way. The first time I saw this movie, it just made no sense to me at all. And I'm not mm-hmm. someone who always needs a movie to make sense, but this right. just got so confusing that I kind of checked out a little bit. Well, but, I think all all the jargon they use and the way mm-hmm. they're you know, it's so many there's so many conversations going on in the film that it makes you want to understand what's going on. Yeah, it, because, it was it was never dumbed down. Right, exactly, and because I'm like you, I mean, plot to me is not always the most interesting aspect of a film or most important um but for this film it it almost it does seem like they want you to pay extra attention to what is going on Mm -hmm. um you kind of just get that feeling so it's like you know and it kind of brings you into this world which i'm sure we'll talk about but it makes you want to be a part of of what they're talking about yeah it's weird a a lot of because there are a lot of films and a lot of directors who will intentionally lose you a little bit because they want you to pay attention to the emotion they want you to pay attention to the mood this one seems to lose you a little bit i think because he actually wants you to pay more attention to the plot, mm-hmm. uh, which is a weird kind of 
uh, backwards way of doing things. It, it can be a little bit difficult. Um, once again, this is made for only $7,000, so yeah. that may have been a little bit of an effect of the mm -hmm. low budget, but I don't think so. I, I think... Yeah. Well, we'll go more into. Um, sorry to cut you off there, but we'll we'll go more into you know uh, regarding the budget, uh, the different means that they had, and and the very clever ways they got around certain things, which has been a ongoing subject of this uh, of the series. Mm -hmm. um, and you did a very good job of explaining the plot. I think you did a very simplified version, obviously, um, but even that much was way more than I knew when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. And even coming back to it, uh, I guess I had seen it a few years ago. I actually don't remember exactly when, but coming back to it now uh, for the show, you know, I was like, all right, gonna really get into this, you know, <laughs> gonna just have all my focus, gonna add a couple cups of uh, coffee going, and I was just ready to sit down and just take it all in and just, like, you know, pay attention to the plot as much as I could because I knew more, you know, what I was getting myself into than the first time. Because the first time you see this film, at, at least for me, um, I didn't realize just how much is actually going on mm -hmm. when, when you're watching it. Um, because as we discussed uh, briefly before we started recording, there's actually multiple timelines going on. Mm -hmm. uh, like six at, or seven the of them. Right, <laughs> at the same time. And the film itself is a paradox. I mean, it, it's discussing mm -hmm. paradoxes. Parad paradigm? I'm not sure. Paradigm? <laughs> Something, yeah. Yeah. And it itself, it's a, that's kind of a paradoxical word because no matter how you say it, it's it really going to sound really yeah. weird. <laughs> exactly. And the film itself, you know, is a paradox. So there's a lot going on. This film, it's hard to sum up. Um, to me, I would say this film is essentially about two guys who discover time travel mm -hmm. and then they try futilely to contain it. They mm -hmm. try to make it adhere to certain rules, uh, which because there are ethics and morals involved and money mm -hmm. uh, simply does not work. No. I think I think that's what it comes down to. It's it's trying to make something work that doesn't work yeah. or that sh that shouldn't work. It's something that shouldn't exist almost. I mean, that could be argued. Obviously, time travel, you know, whether or not it does exist, whatever. Um, you know, these these two are you know they're the two main characters that we follow are two. I, I believe they're lifelong friends, right? They've been friends for a long time. It seems like they know each other particularly well. Yeah, and they're two they're two young professionals, entrepreneurs. You know, uh, idealistic, very smart, obviously, and uh, we. But I think the the film is about how their friendship uh, kind of disintegrates, and mm -hmm. it's uh, it's actually kind of a tragic story when you think about it, especially with the way it ends. That you know, where everything is kind of where it began, with oh these you know fun conversations uh, in the in the kitchen, you know, during the holidays with your friends, talking about ideas and things that you could do and then where it leads up with their friendship dissolving and uh they kind of lose what they had yeah it's, each ki other. it's kind of a classic gold rush story and what right. i mean by that is you know two people discover gold or in this case time travel but they both have different ideas about what that discovery means who will get to keep the riches how they should deal with the riches and they don't communicate with each other and so much of this movie where it gets confusing i think is that we are actually kind of seeing it. There is a narrator who, once again, full spoilers, we find out at the end is one of the multiple versions of the Aaron character. Aaron played by the director, Shane Carruth. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, so we, we do have a narrator, but I think that the story, for the most part, is actually told in a kind of third-person, omniscient way. And where it gets confusing is that we're seeing kind of what everyone is doing, but we're not exactly figuring out, we're not exactly knowing when everything is happening, uh, because the, right. the whole film takes place over about the course of a week, but because they're repeating events because of the time travel, it's th there are no there are no title cards or anything like that stating here we're on Tuesday, here we're on Thursday. So things are happening out of order, and that can make it kind of confusing. Um, mm -hmm. But but I think it, it also has a lot to do with like past, past where it gets confusing, and I think that the confusion is important because what the director Shane Carruth is doing is by making the movie get confusing, he's showing us how confusing it's getting to these characters uh, because. You know, they've discovered something that they don't really understand, and this is basically just the testing phase. Uh, you know, anyone who's ever attempted to do anything with a new technique knows exactly how difficult it is the first few times you do it and how you're just kind of treading water. So when you're, you're dealing with something this complicated, of course it's going to be way more confusing than anyone, even these people who are really knowledgeable mm -hmm. about it could understand. Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of runs off the rails a little bit there. The moment for me in watching this movie the second time through, when it actually clicked, like, like, and, and I'm not saying I understand this movie in its entirety, I've watched a couple <laughs> analysis videos, I've read about it, I'm still not entirely sure I get it, but there's mm -hmm. one moment, I want to say somewhere around the halfway point, where Aaron is talking about this one other character whose name is escaping me, but he's never even shown in the film, um, but he, basically what's happened is this other character who isn't shown has stolen, at some point has stolen... Uh, an idea for one of the inventions that Aaron and Abe created together. And Aaron says, man, I would just love to punch him square in the face. And Abe kind of has this moment where he looks at Aaron and realizes what Aaron is thinking or implying, uh, which is that they could use time travel to punch him in his face, get it out of his system and then reverse it. Uh, which, which just shows how irresponsible these two could be because they are just these young yeah. guys. But it also shows this idea of a lack of trust. Once you start to, not only on the part of Abe to Aaron, but also Aaron not trusting himself. Because mm -hmm. when you say, oh, I would love to do this, and you know you have this time travel capability, you start to think, oh, what if I already have done this? Mm -hmm. so, so it becomes this complicated thing where these characters not only have to stop trusting the people around them a little bit, but they also have to say, you know, what am I doing? What are my doubles doing? Uh, which is really complicated. Yeah, I, th I think what we learned straight away from this film is that time travel is complicated <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not it's not even something as simple as oh i want to punch this guy in the face you know and go back in time and then pretend like it never happened that's you know the the, the paradox that you're creating there is just insurmountable i mean uh, they touch on this in other films but i think in this film especially it's like they deal with that so much and they discuss it they go into depth with it um and actually what i wanted to so Let's start at the beginning of the film because mm -hmm. I, you know, we don't normally go through beat by beat, but I think with this movie, it's important. I, 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 yeah, it's important. I think I, I want to talk about how. So when the movie begins, I, I love how it just throws you right into it. Mm -hmm. um, so it starts off with a little opening montage. They show you different details of the experiment going on inside the garage, which is where a lot of the action takes place, um, which is part of the genius of the low budget because you know. Let's shoot it in a garage. Let's shoot it in a house in, in the suburbs, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so 
yeah so the movie starts the the movie begins there with the experiment going it's the, the experiment's already happening it's already going on um it's not the time travel experiment yet but it's, it's what becomes the time travel experiment um and uh, I, like i said i love how it just throws you right into that that first conversation they have at the kitchen table and there's something very refreshing about it uh it immediately piques your interest and gets you intrigued for what's going on you're you know these people are just they're just having this uh, full-on technical, all this jargons being thrown around, you know, and, and you just, like, there's no better way for this movie to get you into the next, whatever, well, it's not even 90 minutes, but the next 70, 70 or minutes. so, <laughs> 70 or so minutes, minutes right. Um, there's no better way, I think, than to just literally throw you into it, and that's what they do. Um, and the other thing this film does, and it's it's illustrated so well in that first scene, that it does so interestingly, I, I think, um, is it mixes the mundane with the fantastical. So obviously it's a story about time travel. It's a science fiction story. But at the same time, so as an example, so that first conversation that they're having uh, at the dinner table, in the background, there's these domestic duties going on around them. Uh, I believe, is it his wife or his girlfriend? I forget who. Um, uh, I believe that Aaron has a wife. Abe has a girlfriend. Okay, so I... I think it's the wife, but the wife, either yeah. way, yeah, there's, so there's domestic things going on, you know, there's dishes are being done, uh, you can see Christmas decorations in the background, in the corners of the frame, uh, things like that, and then throughout the film, they're, they're doing things like playing board games, uh, tossing crumpled papers in the waste bins, like they're free, you know, doing free throws, um, they're calling pest control about rats in the attic, uh, there's a scene where they're just watching sports on TV. Can I stop you, you know? for a second with the yeah. rat, the rats in the attic thing? Yeah. Uh, in kind of reading up on this, I realized that there were never actually rats in the attic. Okay. I, I realized that that if I know we're jumping a little bit, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll no, come no. back to that. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to the no, rats in the attic. You that's actually um, something I wasn't aware of. But so okay, so things do have double meanings, obviously, in this mm-hmm. film. But what I was just trying to illustrate there is just how they how they integrated the two aspects because this is not a multi-million dollar you know (laughs) this is not a a high budget movie we're talking about here and the way that they used these low budget locations and techniques i I think it was just it just makes so much sense for this film because these are these are two you know not nobodies but they're just young entrepreneurs they're just Mm -hmm. starting out so obviously we're just going to be hanging out in living rooms and kitchens and Mm -hmm. I, i you know they go they play whatever like you know, they're just watching sports. They go to a hotel. Nothing is extravagant about this movie, and I think that's what speaks speaks to me about it because it's almost like a down home version of a science fiction story. Did you get that from it? Yeah, well, and, and I think what was nice about that, um, and there's a quote that was attributed to Shane Carruth. I'm trying to pull up the exact quote uh, if I can find it here. Um, but basically, to paraphrase, paraphrase what he was saying is that a lot of humanity's great. Uh, uh, discoveries have happened in much less glamorous environments yeah. than this took place. And the, the early prototypes of a lot of the great machines and other things that we've invented as human beings were really kind of primitive. So I, I loved that the actual time travel devices in this movie basically just look like boxes Yeah. Um, <laughs> for two yeah, reasons. Could... Yeah, mm-hmm. for two reasons. One is that they are a primitive technology in terms of their design, not in terms of what's going on inside them but you know if you have these guys who don't have a a high budget which is kind of an interesting thing when you talk about the meta um nature of the fact that this film is so micro budget also and it's pretty much just guys in their garage 
mm-hmm. inventing something that in the end ended up going way outside of their reach and probably their expectation, which is But that is how it would start out in real life. That's yeah, the thing. Like, it that's, would start yeah. out like that. It, it would be yeah. modest and it would probably happen by mistake. They would be mm-hmm. trying to discover something else and it would pop up. Right. Um, so, so I love that. And, and I think it made it feel a lot more realistic. Mm-hmm. And also, it I think will prevent it. I mean, we're talking here 15 years after this film was made, and nothing about it seems dated or anything. Because, I know. That's, that's another thing I realized when I watched it. Yeah. yeah, which so often in sci-fi, when you're dealing with something, you watch it even a few years later, and the way that the futuristic technology is portrayed feels so hokey and ridiculous. And in this one... Yeah. I have a feeling if time travel is ever invented, they'll probably look back at this film and be like, you know, not bad. Exactly. Yeah, it's like they kept it so modest that no one could even say anything about it. And actually, one of the quotes I read from the filmmaker, uh, from from Shane Carruth, uh, when he was talking about the actual box that you were mentioning, the prototype, he said that prototypes almost never include neon lights and chrome. Mm-hmm. I want I wanted to see a story play out that was more in line with the way real innovation takes place than I had seen on film before. And I think that when it comes down to it is the core of the film right there. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's just nuts and bolts. It's a movie that's only concerned with the the meat and potatoes uh, of, you know, of inventing something. It actually reminds me a lot of Idaho Transfer because mm-hmm. a lot of the dialogue in that film um, is pretty procedural and just kind of uh, discussing the plot, even though the plot is hard to really surmise. They're, they're mostly talking about what's going on. Yeah. And in and, and this film, you get that, you know, a million times over, but, um, you know, it's kind of similar in that regard. Interestingly, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Shane Carruth maybe watched Idaho Transfer in the making yeah. of this because that it, they did kind of take a very similar approach and you know the science isn't more procedural yeah yeah the, the science the actual science isn't as important as mm-hmm. observing the characters interacting with what they've created mm-hmm. um and keeping it simple yeah yeah definitely and methodical i think um like more than yeah i think that because a lot of these films are just conversations because they're not concerned with showing big you know, they're not concerned with showing off with effects or anything like that. Yeah, so, which is no um, point. so what the film comes down to is dialogue, uh, which in almost all these films, um, you know, I would say that's that's actually been a pretty much a through line um, mm-hmm. for all the films we've talked about. You know, when I think back on Liquid Sky, Dark Star, even THX. I mean, a lot of it is just dialogue based, mm-hmm. almost two, char- you know, two characters or a bunch of people in a room just talking to each other about ideas and theories and things like that. Um, which when it gets down to it, I mean, that's, that's how you can probably cover the most ground with different ideas, uh, Mm -hmm. different, you know, science fiction ideas and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but it does it, you know, we go back to this classic filmmaker and writerly trope of the show don't tell, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of thing that you hear people say over and over again, particularly Mm -hmm. in any kind of screenwriting seminar or book, which, you know, there's obviously debate on that as to... It's been drilled into my head. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone, which, and and then you see some you know, hotshot young writer, director come along and it's all dialogue and you're like, what Mm -hmm. have I been doing this whole time? But I I think that uh, this movie is a great example of two things. One is uh, show, don't tell, uh, which is really interesting because there is so much dialogue, but the dialogue never really feels like they're actually telling you what's going on. It just feels like these kind of very mundane conversations that are important. The thing is they are, but Mm -hmm. it's so abstract to you as a viewer because... 
you're not on the same level as them. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that that uh, Shane Carruth, you know, when he set out, set out to make this movie, he said he did not want to talk down to the audience. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, you know, treat them as an equal um, in this field because he actually had a, a degree. Um, I was going to go into the background of, of him a little bit more, but he holds a, a BS in math. Mm-hmm. Um, from uh, Stephen F. Austin State University, and he's a former engineer, so yeah. he does know what he's talking about. When he wrote the script for this, obviously he he's he's a smart guy. So um, I think he just approached it with the idea that you know what, we're just gonna hit the ground running. Um, the audience can catch up if they want, and this is very much a movie that if the viewer wants to get more into it and dive deeper into what they're talking about, they, they can. can. Yeah, because it's real. It's real. It's you know. It's based on real theories and, you know, and um, so it's if they want to. Yeah, it's it's all right there for And if you go on the Wikipedia article, you'll see diagrams. And I'm sure there's probably thousands of sites out there dedicated to this movie uh, and theories and things like that. So it's it's fun. It's like a cool it's almost like a puzzle, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a movie, but it's also it just it feels like a kind of like a fun uh Well, it depends on how you look at it. It could be frustrating. It could be. When I first watched this movie, I. uh yeah, I guess I, I don't know if I was frustrated, but I I didn't get it like I got it the second time. Yeah. And I think, I think that's okay. You know, yeah. I, th- I, think I think it's think... just one of those movies that demands a second watch. And I think we see less and less of those uh, these days mm-hmm. Be, uh, mm-hmm. for a couple, you know, reasons. Markets is one reason. Um, also just popular taste. But I think, yeah. you know, this is just one of those movies that if you only watch it once, uh, you're not really going to ever connect Mm -hmm. with it because it's just there's so much information to absorb in such a short amount of time but if you let yourself go in again kind of not having to just figure out the basic layout of everything but you kind of have a rough idea of where things go and then you can really get into the ins and outs it's very rewarding yeah and this and this brings me to a question i wanted to ask you jeremy Mm -hmm. um do you think the filmmakers were particularly concerned with providing the viewers with a clear explanation of what is going on or is that sort of missing the point of the film uh no i think they were really concerned with making sure the viewer didn't really know what was going on um, honestly you, which which so is you think bold. that wasn't okay yeah yeah i know because it, because it feels too carefully constructed to me mm-hmm. that i think the filmmaker or filmmakers would be so blasé about you know like oh it doesn't matter if it makes sense like like i think that yeah. it was a conscious decision saying and and they could have saved it in a cut you know i'm sure they i'm sure in an edit they could have figured out a way to construct it they could have done a voiceover if they felt that you know there there are ways with a low budget where you can Mm -hmm. make things more clear so clearly they watched this film back after they finished editing and said you know like no this is this conscious decision we want Mm -hmm. this to be confusing at least the first time you watch it yeah and i think adding that narration in like you were talking about i think that Mm -hmm. also illustrates that because mm-hmm. um if it was just straightforward with no narration then that could be up for debate but i think because they added that in yeah they it, were just, it does yeah it creates like a sort of vagueness about mm-hmm. it yeah um, because they very easily with that narration you know because the narration doesn't really pop up that often you, you hear no. it maybe once every i mean i'm just guessing here maybe maybe once every 15 20 minutes if even mm-hmm. uh yeah. and and they could have easily had that narration running through it like a scorsese movie where every scene, you know, we were doing this, and then we did that, and just yeah. clarifying. Um, but I think for two reasons... That would have reasons, kind of ruined it. Yeah, it, it, it would have been, been, it would have been yeah. boring, because then it's basically just a story of two guys getting mad at each other because they're confused. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that um, 
But but what they did also with the narration, another reason why that wouldn't have worked, is that the narration, as I understand it, was a phone call. Uh, mm-hmm. So so I think that, you know, to keep it a realistic phone call, it couldn't have run through as a phone call, I think, from Aaron to himself. I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure. Uh, like like And, and uh, once again, if you've seen the movie, that doesn't sound as confusing. If you haven't, then you're already <laughs> so confused right now that it doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, but but I think it was a phone call from Aaron to one of his doubles explaining everything that had happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Aaron isn't going to talk to himself as if he doesn't know anything. So it couldn't have just been this descriptive voiceover. You know, he's not going to sit there and explain all the science and explain, you know, he's going to explain the bare minimum of what his double needs to know to understand what he's trying to express. Mm-hmm. Um so, so yeah, I, I think it was a conscious decision that it's confusing, and I think that's a bold and exciting decision that it's confusing. It, it, you know, mm-hmm. it takes some real, uh, real fearless it's, writing and filmmaking to do that. It's a unique way to present a narrative. It's a, it's an interesting approach. Um, like I said, the dialogue is a huge part of it. It's, it's mostly uh, dialogue in the film, and it is almost completely procedural. But I, f- I found it funny, uh, interest and interesting that mixed in with this is bits of well like you said the narration and then things like uh what do you want to eat you know like yeah like where do you, where, where do you want to go to eat like oh it's a new place like, like it just kind of it makes it so much more like lived in and real when mm-hmm. they when they do stuff like that and but also I, adds there's some humor as well um yeah. mixed in it's not, but i do love how completely serious they take it and it's like it's like you said the characters are never the characters themselves are never confused really it's it's almost like it all falls on you the viewer to like all right you got to all right through. you got to figure out what's going on with this you know mm-hmm. um so it's 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 fun it's it's uh yeah you just got to like look at it with that approach you know when you come into it you you can't be intimidated by it yeah. you know what i will say with uh in regard to the you know what do you want to eat kind of dialogue or we'll get back to our rats in the attic here is i don't think that that dialogue is mixed in in a way where it's just meant to lighten things, I think what it's kind of doing, because as they get further along, pretty much what they end up having to do is retrace their steps. Um, So it actually complicates things. So it complicates things, because by having these what-do-you-want-to-eat conversations, you know, as a viewer, but also to put yourself in the shoes of these people, you realize that they can't gloss over those conversations either. Someone saying what-do-you-want-to-eat becomes just as important as the science itself, because if they miss you know, yeah, that what do you want to eat point. conversation. Um, to get to the rats, the reason that that is important, which... Let's get um, to the rats, Jeremy. Yeah, so the rats. <laughs> that I, I, I figured out by reading and looking at some analysis, I wish I had figured this out myself because it's kind of a brilliant detail, is that basically what happens at the end of the story, at a certain point, uh, both Abe and Aaron realize that this is going horribly wrong and they need to fix it. So they've each created these fail-safe boxes, which pretty much allow them to go back to before any time travel has happened. And they would basically just need to take over, let the double go from there, and they would see their double and convince the double, you know, don't do this, it's a bad idea, it's all going to go horribly wrong. They've, but since they've both created these, but neither has knowledge that the other has done it or used it, um, Aaron starts recording uh, conversations and everything that happens through the day, and he starts kind of reliving the same day over and over again to try to set it up to avoid this big, difficult confrontation that could go horribly mm-hmm. wrong. So at one point, he actually ends up meeting one of his doubles because his plan goes wrong. And what he has to do is he has to lock his double up in the attic. But since this has been happening since before, because they're going back in time, the sound coming from the attic is actually just Aaron's double moving around trying to escape. So so that's what's so crazy about this movie is that these little tiny conversations that you gloss over because you're seeing it in the wrong order. 
mm-hmm. become really significant over time. Wow. You know, there's things like like when they're just eating breakfast, he goes back and he's putting, you know, uh, some kind of drug in the cereal. Mm-hmm. So, so by seeing him eating the cereal on these first days, you know, it's becoming important. Right. Um, and, and things are, what, what's also interesting about this movie, which this is why like the, the show don't tell thing can also be kind of, uh, it, it can be challenged in an interesting way is a lot of the most important events in this entire film happen off screen. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, very true. Yeah. And, and they're just discussed. So, so we are being told about them, but because they're just being discussed, then when we go back to them, it, it's even more kind of daunting and scary because, uh, or for example, there's one point when Abe's girlfriend's father, who they're trying to get to fund this project they find out that he's been time traveling and we have no clue how it's oh, happened right, and they yeah. have no clue how it's happened. Because he has an unkept beard or something. Because he has an unkept beard, yeah. And they saw him a few hours earlier and he had a clean-shaven beard. So yeah. there, there's all these little, little, things like that. little yeah. tiny details that seem really insignificant and it's just mm. so tightly wound together. But because a lot of it's happening off-screen, it can be a little vague. Um, yeah. But but there's just so many of these amazing, complicated details that yeah. have I, been worked into this script that are just mind-blowing. And like you said, even the mundane activities take up time. So uh, in, a mo- in a film about time travel, everything is important. You're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something I didn't even think of when I was uh, when I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, it's, that's also why this movie can be watched multiple times and yeah. why it is a, a good cult film, I, th- I think. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of uh, like, like if we're going to talk about this from a filmmaker's perspective, a couple of the things which that, I, I do what I do because I, it's very interesting the story behind it yeah well the story behind it but also just at, at, you know as Mark and I are both filmmakers so just observing from the outside too like if I were making this film the decisions that I maybe would have made differently and I'm not going to start listing that because there's not a lot I would have done differently um, because this isn't my film but I'm saying just observationally what they were doing that I think is really interesting they have like a couple concepts going on uh, one is kind of the traditional like Hitchcock version of suspense, where because we're seeing things out of order, we understand that there's th- there is this um, thing that has gone wrong, and we don't entirely understand exactly what it is. But because there's this uh, you know bomb under the table, to use Hitchcock's phrasing, you know there's this thing that we understand is going to explode at some point. I think that makes us, even though we don't totally get it, we're kind of hooked. But another thing that I think is really great, which I, I heard an interview recently with Stanley Kubrick, which he didn't do a lot of interviews, so it was really cool. I found this little soundbite, yeah. which maybe we can include somewhere. Um, but he's talking about efficiency in filmmaking and how he thinks that commercials are so efficient and how most directors mm-hmm. in feature films have to kind of take too much time to explain things. And he's saying that, you know, the greatest... When, when cinema will separate itself from literature will be when it's kind of this purely visual thing when it's efficient, when, when you don't need to take time to explain things, when you can just show an image and it comes across. And I think that the fact that in 77 minutes, including credits, that they were able to pack this much mm-hmm. information is, a, is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And part of that is due to the fact that, I believe it was a sh- the shooting ratio was two to one, which is unheard of yeah. on a on a feature film um so let's dive into that the actual making of this film just a little bit because i think it's very important to talk about especially with this movie so the budget for the entire film like we said was was around seven thousand. uh most of that money was spent on 16 millimeter film stock which was then transferred to mini digital f- video film so it could be edited on a pc 
Mm-hmm. So in terms of major productions, that is almost nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Um, I so know short were... films that are made for three times that. Exactly. No. Exactly. Um, so in order to cut costs, uh, Shane Carruth, the filmmaker, he wore many hats. He was the writer. He acted in it. He did the editing. I believe he did the music as well. Um, and he did mostly single takes of the shots and, uh, you know, and like we said, there was that shooting ratio of two to one. So they only filmed what they needed. They had everything very heavily storyboarded and thought out well, well beforehand, which actually goes into play with how the movie comes across as well. So it's kind of interesting, um, you know, how everything is kind of straightforward and just kind of like laying it, laying it all out there for you. Um, so then, yeah, he, he transferred it to mini digital video so he could edit it on his own computer. Um, obviously, this caused some problems. There were some uh, sound issues and other post-production I- issues. I think the editing of it actually took a couple years mm-hmm. um, because of that. So the actual filming took place a very short span of time. I think it was like a month or, yeah, probably like a month or something like that. And then, uh, but the post-production was much longer. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there was a lack of footage, uh, which made it difficult to work around for certain continuity errors and things like that. So the reason that we don't see a lot of things, partly, I'm sure, you know, in the film itself, I'm, I'm sure that's partly due to that. But also, like, you know, I think they were very smart about it. And I think from a story standpoint, it makes sense, the things that we don't see, you know, there's, there's a reason we don't see it, like you said. I mean, I think it all comes back around. And it's a movie that you could watch multiple times and just get something new from it every time. So... I just found it very interesting with, um, you know, how he it's right. He was a very smart guy. He he incorporated his uh, his background in sc- you know schooling and, and uh, being an engineer. He incorporated everything that he had into, you know, he, he got his friends together, friends and family. And he just made this this movie. And it's, it's very inspiring. I mean, for us, both of us being filmmakers, I think looking at that, we're like, damn, you know, yeah, what the, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> it, kind, it kind of harkens back to like the Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi, oh, totally. yeah. early 90s Sundance generation, which this did. This film won the, I believe, the Grand Jury Prize. Yeah, the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. So that, right. that that's a major, I mean, obviously, 2004, these days, Sundance means something a little bit different because, yeah. you know, back in the the kind of 90s, early 2000s Sundance days, you saw a lot more of this kind of thing. These days, Sundance is a lot more, you know, it's, it's generally a little bit bigger, bigger budget mm-hmm. now, but it's still a right. huge, huge deal for a film made for this small of a budget oh, without any famous actors or actresses. Really exactly. No one of note attached to it. To and it went on to make, prize. yeah, it went on to make, uh, 400, almost 425,000 at the box office. So. And I'm sure now after, you know, having oh, it, yeah. this was on Netflix so, you oh. know, this little thing, not that the money is the most important thing, but the fact but that... For, yeah, for this being your first film, and I mean, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing what he did. Um, not by himself, obviously, but he did... A, a big brunt of it was, was him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did go on to make... Not, not too much else. We, we talked about this a little bit. Um, he did direct uh, Upstream... Cl- sorry. He did direct Upstream Color. Uh, which I did see and I liked, and now that I'm trying to think of it, I can't remember anything about it, but I remember liking it. Um, but but if I liked uh, Primer this much after revisiting it, I wonder if I should revisit that one as well. And um, it's it's definitely a, a much more vague movie, uh, but in a good way. Um, yeah. yeah, just to dive uh, one last little bit into the well of budget talk, um, there was a creative use of objects and supplies. Uh, much of it was analog, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, you're talking about like the box itself for the prototype and stuff. That was, I thought, really cool. Um, just a plain gray box, you know, just had like a hum 
sound overlay. <laughs> it's like a little bit shaking. Very, very basic. Uh, yeah, a little shaking going on. I, I think it was, um, I looked it up. They overlaid sounds of mechanical grinder and a car engine. Um, so no, you know, no digital effects there. This is all just nuts and bolts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, it was set in unglamorous industrial parks, suburban tract homes, things like that. Um, so there's all different angles. They, they, they cut the corners, for, you know. It, it's just, you know. But also, I think it's interesting, like, the way he – they used 16-millimeter stock and they transferred that to mini-digital – um, it's interesting because it kind of gives it this grainy look that I like, actually. You only see it on certain um, movies from a certain time frame, I would say, um, where you actually still see that kind of grain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from the film, but also being processed onto the digital. Yeah, uh, it's kind of tortured. It, yeah, and it gives it, you know, I'm sure a lot of people don't like that look, but I think it can be kind of um, unique and has kind of like a warm feel to it literally like a fuzzy feel to it mm-hmm. um which is it just makes it a little different because you know so many movies now are so cold and sterile looking that it just gives it a little extra character i think um certain yeah. certain types of movies and it works it works better for some than others for sure yeah. well um, and the photography of this is really pretty stellar. yeah i wanted to talk about that too because um you know even though it's so dialogue based uh, they switch up uh, the sh- the scenery a lot. They do a good job of switching up the scenery and having it set in different uh, different locations, and also the way they they frame certain shots and they'll cut off certain things here. Like you know, the the framing is just always interesting of, of what yeah. they're doing. But, but what what did you notice? Well, I just in terms of the fr- obviously, the, well, well, so what I'm noticing and just thinking about now actually is that it's hitting me is I didn't even really question how well photographed this was. When I was watching, I was just kind of in the story. But if they're only shooting on a two-to-one ratio, you know, that means that not only is the photograph, you know, not only are the images framed that beautifully to begin with, but that means that they're getting those performances because the performances in this movie are really good as well. Like, I, yeah. I didn't question it for a second. And for so non-actors, for yeah, sure. Yeah. For non-actors, and they're, they're really beautifully framed up. Um, and, and that this is all happening in two takes is pretty remarkable because... You know, right. I know I, I've been on sets and, you know, even if you're working with really good actors, something will happen with a focus pull, mm-hmm. you know, that makes it go like there are so many things that can go wrong, which so is many things that can why go movies and, and this wasn't shot. You know, if you're shooting this on digital, it doesn't matter. You know, if you're shooting mm-hmm. it on digital, you can shoot a million takes. And oh, yeah. You're just, yeah. you know, get it. You, you just clear your memory card out and then you're good. You just keep mm-hmm. going. But the fact that they shot this on film and were able to get performances that were that on point. In combination yeah. with the, the, how well lit it was, is mm-hmm. really astounding. It's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, if this movie was made today, it would probably be made strictly digital. Yeah, right? for sure. 100%. And, and they'd have tons and tons of footage probably. Um, unless they set out to be like, you know, we're only going to f- film what we storyboard, you know. Which, which is an which, interesting challenge, of course. Yeah. And I mean, people try to make films that way and I'm sure many people do, but come at, at the end of the day it's like you know we have a digital camera let's just shoot you know yeah. let's we have let's the get time some, let's get an extra let's, shot yeah let's get some b-roll we uh you know let's get an extra take of this shot you know so it's like a little bit here a little bit there and you end up almost kind of completely changing what you set out to do so i think it's interesting that this was made in 2004 like the time it was made you know it's they they were using film that's what they were happened to be using um, and that's what they wanted to use. And because of that, I think that caused a lot of decisions for them. 
because of the small budget that they that they had. And I think you know, it just makes me wonder like how much of this film comes from that. You know, it's like you talk about being a low budget i mean how much of this film is what it is because of its budget you know Mm -hmm. and i i think that we may lose some of that without you know with film going away Mm -hmm. um not even for the for the worse or for the for the better it's just a change it's just going to be different yeah yeah Yeah, i mean you you know people can make a movie on 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 an iphone these days exactly um, which is great i think it's really exciting but it also you know i think it makes it a lot more experimental yeah you're not being yeah but also, you're not being as discerning about yeah. what you're putting out there. I I think. Well, um, and a good, a really good filmmaker will be, but I also think in the spirit of experimentation, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird trade-off because what's experimental here happened in pre-production, whereas if you're shooting on an iPhone, you yeah. know what's experimental. You might say, "Oh, well, I'm going to experiment with." Like I know for me, like I do this series of short films, and I make them each film I do right. for five dollars. It's it's called five dollars shorts. I just, you know, every other week, you can whatever. plug it, Jeremy. Don't I'll plug worry. it. I'll plug it a little. We'll, <laughs> we'll put a link to that too. Um, right, but, you, but what I know, to, yeah. what I know is that because I'm shooting digitally, you know, I'll kind of pick an exercise to focus on, um, with each film I'm doing. And sometimes that exercise will be, you know, improvisation. Sometimes it'll be a challenging camera movement that I yeah. don't know if I can pull off or it might look weird or a weird way of cutting it together, which means I have so to you, shoot it in a weird way. You push yourself in certain ways. I'll push myself, but a lot of that is happening on the day, on set, working with actors, working with right. the camera. It's kind of it's kind of breaking down because, you know, generally the way it'll go is you're writing a script. If you're doing a feature film or even a bigger short film, you're writing a script and you're doing a lot of pre-production. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to get it pretty locked down. Um, so, so when you actually get on set, you don't have to worry about yeah. as much problem solving. So, so my goal with these is I've always kind of been like, well, I'm going to open myself up to on-set problem solving. What, what, what's interesting is someone working in such a small budget range, you know, 15 years ago, they they kind of have to say, we're not going to deal with any on-set problem solving. Like, mm-hmm. all of our problems need to happen beforehand because right. if we waste our film, you know, then there'll which, just be a hole in the movie. Which is a very Hitchcock way to do it because that was his mm-hmm. philosophy. It's, you know, everything's been worked out before the camera even rolls. So, yeah. Uh, but but then, you know, that takes away something from the filmmaking. I think Hitchcock even said that filmmaking became boring for him because he knew what he well, was. I, well, after, yeah, after that stage of the script being written and everything being meticulously planned out, uh, he found it boring. So there is something to be said for just getting in there, uh, getting on set on, on location of that day and just just trying things out, you know, just experimenting. I think that's really cool that you do that, Jeremy. And people should check out those five dollar shorts. You can you can plug it. Where, where is it? Uh, where can we find it at? Uh, so it's a couple places. So if you go on, which this is weird because I don't normally. No, plug do it, it man. But uh, I, norm- I fully endorse it. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, if, if you endorse it, Mark, I'll, I'll go for <laughs> it. Um, yeah, you can check it out. It's on Facebook, and it's five dollar shorts. That's a dollar symbol five five period zero zero. So like, as if you were writing on a check, five dollar, and then the word shorts. Or you can see it on my Vimeo channel, which is Vimeo slash Remy Fink. So check it out. It goes, I think it goes right along with what we're talking about here, to be honest, because um, it doesn't get it doesn't get much less than five dollars, right? Now is is it now is it actually five dollars or? Well, so yeah, so so it is it, it is not counting the equipment I already own. So I own oh, well, a, yeah, yeah, a yeah. DSLR camera. And I own a little lavalier microphone, which I'm recording on now. And that, <laughs> and I, and I own a couple of uh, work lights, like the ones you would see construction workers oh, yeah. working with. Yeah. No, like professional lighting equipment. So the Other five, than that, yeah. yeah. The, so the five dollars will go to a prop. I mean, most of them honestly end up being zero dollars. 
um, uh, because yeah. you just get so used to writing without yeah the budget or you, or you you use things that you already have like yeah you said, yeah which which um, to go back to primer i think is a lot of what they're doing you know they're like oh well you know we're engineers so we know people who work at this lab so we can film a scene in the lab we have yeah. some sheets of metal already mm-hmm. probably lying around because they're you know, he's an engineer and he has friends who are engineers, so they were probably already actually just doing some kind of project with this. Probably, yeah. Um, you know, so oh, we, we have this laying around, which, I, I you know, is, is a really exciting way of making films. And I think it also inspires some kind of creativity because I think if, uh, you know, we were to see Michael Bay go and try to make Primer, <laughs> and this isn't to knock on Michael Bay. Uh, but I'd I, love to see that. <laughs> I, I would love to see that too, actually. But, but I think that the means... You know, you know, I think the means of the time travel and the spaces that they were building in would probably look a lot more like an Avengers headquarters mm-hmm. than a garage. So mm-hmm. I, I think that this is one of those situations, as we talked about a lot in this series, uh, one of the biggest themes is kind of that the limitation breeds the creativity. Mm-hmm. And because they were, it just had to be so controlled, it really opened things up because you have to figure out how do we, even blocking, you know, how do we block this scene out in a garage instead of this massive lab space and, and those kind of little things? Or, you know, how do we show something moving without actually, you know, having a special effect to move it around? Right. And, and it's those little things that I think make it really rich that directors who do work on bigger budgets who are really good kind of still take that attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you see you know, a Paul Thomas Anderson or a Sofia Coppola, you know, or a Barry Jenkins, like th- th- those are directors who are still kind of taking that same attitude. Like what's the most creative way to do this? Not the most expensive, not mm-hmm. the most flashy. Um, yeah. But it, it does become really easy once you start getting a little money and mm-hmm. more, more uh, forces behind what you're working on. It can become really easily easy to forget mm-hmm. that this is an amazing way to do it ingenuity is what it all comes down to yes um that's i think the main through line for these films Mm -hmm. but since this is the last film in this series uh jeremy was there anything you wanted to uh to say in regards to that anything to to sum it up or anything that you or how do you think this film primer uh how do you think it fits in with everything else here uh so personally this was one of the films that i enjoyed the most from this series Mm -hmm. um Maybe I would say Liquid Sky is yeah. the other that one, one was, that yeah. really clicks for me. Um, that was and a I, highlight. Yeah, and yeah. I think that the reason that these two films kind of stood out for me more than any others, and I, I enjoyed going through this entire series as I do through every series. Same. I, you know, I love yeah. watching any movie. Um, but the reason that these two in particular stood out to me is that they were human stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of these, you know, most of the films we've talked about were pretty human, but these two in particular... Uh, they kind of use the science to get to something more philosophical or or more emotional, Mm -hmm. Uh, which for me is what a great sci-fi movie or book does. It uses the science to talk about human problems, as we discussed last time uh, with Idaho Transfers, that ultimately that's the goal. So I think Primer is a great way to end it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would definitely, if you haven't seen this movie, even if you're not into sci-fi, at all, even if you hate sci-fi, but you are curious about low-budget filmmaking, just watch this movie just to see how they how they did it. Yeah, um, it's a it's an indie movie from two thousand four. It's uh, so even if you just look at it like that, it's like okay, you know, yeah. just it takes you on a ride, you know. It it uh, it's definitely worth watching more than once. I would yeah. say that as well. What about um, you, Mark? Any f- final thoughts on this movie or the series as a whole? I would say you kind of summed it up uh, what I was thinking actually was just about um, you know when when you don't have the money to make aliens or 
Star Wars or anything like that. Um, what you rely on is ideas and characters. Uh, you rely on people um, and concepts and things like that. So it's more abstract, but I think it's very satisfying. Uh, and I think I agree with you. I think all these films were very satisfying to watch in one way or another. And uh, they were all certainly worth it, uh, worth either visiting for the first time or revisiting. Um, and I encourage anyone who did listen to the series and didn't watch all these movies, I, I would in encourage watching all of them because there is some sort of a, a strange through line through all of it, even more than we let on when we started this, I think. Yeah, well, well, um, more than we even knew, you know. <laughs> more than we even knew, exactly, yeah. Um, and partly due to the in the ingenuity that we talked about as well, uh, just to see how they solve these little problems is, is very interesting, and it's different. Not something you go every you know to the movie theater every day and you you could see that on screen. So um, something to to go back and and look at, even if you're not a fan of sci-fi, like you said, even if you're just a, a lover of film, I think it's it's something cool to check out. 100%. So I think that's gonna do it for us. That was probably a long one, but. I, I don't know how else to talk about that movie without kind of babbling on about it because it's one of those movies, man. It it's, just uh, is. it's like I said, if you want to get into it more, you can. Yeah, I'm sure there's all kinds of things online you can find mm -hmm. uh, to get into this one, but that's going to do it for us. Uh, anything, anything else you wanted to add here at the end? No, just uh, thanks for listening to this series and, you know, yeah. looking forward to moving to our next one. Yeah, we're going to figure out another one here. Uh, we got a lot to choose from, so we just have to narrow it down. But for now, uh, thank you for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes and Podbean, and hopefully soon Spotify. So we're trying to figure that one out. Uh, as well as on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.